Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. In a few seconds, I'll be back with Bob Poland. We're going to talk about what do real solutions to inflation look like. Please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of our webpage. We're getting near the end of the year, and I know people are thinking about donating, and we are a 501c3 in the U.S., uh, we're not in Canada and other places, but certainly would appreciate your donations if you go to the website and click donate. Uh, if you're on YouTube, hit subscribe. Uh, most importantly, get on our email list. Be back in just a few seconds. So in previous conversations with Bob Poland, we've discussed inflation, that the real forces driving inflation are primarily, not exclusively, but primarily high energy costs, uh, global supply chain issues, partly caused by the pandemic and to some extent caused by rivalry with China. And there's uh, you know, ongoing issues about semiconductor production. Uh, but raising interest rates has nothing to do with any of that. Raising interest rates does not lower energy prices, and it doesn't deal with the global supply chain. All it does is two things. It helps create more unemployment, which pressures workers to lower wage demands and perhaps be a little more reluctant to organize into unions or be more militant when they're in unions. It's really an attack on workers. So in this session, we're going to talk, okay, let's put all that aside for a moment then what should be done if the objective is actually lowering inflation and not undermining the leverage of the working class? So now joining us is Bob Poland. Bob is the co-director of the Perry Institute in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, and thanks for joining us, Bob. Thanks very much for having me on, Paul. All right. So I've, here's the question I have. I, I, asked before, but here we go. President Biden, in a strange delusional moment, because that's what it would take, picks up the phone, calls, calls, Bob, po calls Bob Poland and says, okay, I heard you. Uh, I actually do want to do something about inflation because otherwise Democrats have no chance of getting elected in 24. Uh, everybody's predicting a deep recession. So, you know, what, what are we supposed to do? Because even me, President Biden, gets if we keep these interest rates so high, we're going to guarantee a deep recession. And that ain't going to be good for us Democrats. So what do you say, Bob? So uh, first of all, just let me summarize again what you just said. You know, the main drivers of inflation now are uh, the supply chain breakdowns that occurred during COVID, and those are getting repaired, and I'll come back to that. Uh, the high energy prices, those have actually come down a bit. And uh, the third factor is increased profits, markups of corporations who are taking advantage, especially of the supply chain shortages, uh, by marking up their profits and marking up their prices and seeing uh, their profits increase. So uh, workers' wages um, have gone up uh, over the past year um, by an average of about 5%. But if inflation is, let's say, 8%, or right now a little less than 8%, that means workers' wages are falling behind inflation. So that means if inflation is 8% and workers' wages go up 5%, that means workers are 3% worse off. Uh, than they were. So the wor workers' wages are not the driver 
of inflation. The drivers of inflation are the supply chain issues, energy prices, and the increased markups. So what do we do about it? Well, actually, uh, I mean, the Biden administration, at least in its rhetoric, has gestured towards all three of those issues. Uh, they have proposed uh, much stricter enforcement of um, antitrust legislation that's already on the books. In other words, preventing big corporations from marking up their prices. They haven't done anything about it, uh, but they have proposed that. Uh, through the infrastructure bill and investments, uh, they have proposed, you know, loosening up the supply chains, increasing the uh, capacity of the U.S. infrastructure. Uh, that's been, uh, you know, that's slow moving, but there. Um, and they have proposed uh, excess profit tax for oil companies. Uh, so uh, put those th three things together, that's a reasonably good anti-inflation program. Now, that's not what the Fed is doing. As you said, Paul, the Fed is about raising interest rates to lower the level of overall activity, that is to make it more difficult to borrow money, which is going to reduce expenditure by businesses, and then they're going to lay off workers. And that's their their plan, is to lay off workers, reduce worker bargaining power, and get those wage demands down. Uh, but uh, the other things, if we were to say, let's go after monopoly pricing power, let's go after the oil price markups, let's uh, weaken the uh you know the the weak links let's strengthen the weak links in the supply chain that will lower inflation uh it may not do it to the same degree you don't get as much uh downward impact on inflation but it does so without attacking the working class so the reality is the republicans control the house um i don't know the real limits of executive orders uh, but if assuming he can create, call, create, call, declare a national emergency of some kind and do some of these things by executive order, uh, let's start with number one. One is the what does that antitrust, anti-monopoly pricing power look like? And two, that that principle of excess oil profits. Why not apply that across the board to all excess profits. For example, I know where I'm living, the, the grocery chains are making way more profit than pre-pandemic. Uh, it looks like all along the food supply chain margins are up. Um, why not just tax away all that excess profit and make it pointless to do, uh, combining that with uh, antitrust? Well, yes. I mean, I mean, antitrust is already on the books. So it's really a matter of enforcement. It doesn't entail new legislation, whereas an excess profit tax would require new legislation. And of course, it would never pass the Republican controlled house. Uh, the other, you know, there are other tools. For example, one of the things that is worsening inflation is the um, speculation on the commodities futures market. So speculation on future prices of food and future prices of oil are pushing up the current present day prices in the market. Again, already on the books, 
uh, regulating the commodities futures market to dampen speculative pressure. But let me let me make one other point before we move on. Inflation is already coming down, Paul. So, you know, if we just looked at the evidence for the last three months, inflation is, uh, you know, last month it was 5% annualized. The previous two months before that, inflation was zero. And that's largely because of the energy prices. Um, but also the supply chain issues are taking care of themselves to some extent. I mean, one of the big things six months ago that was a big driver of inflation was, of all things, used car prices. And used car prices were way up because of the shortage of computer chips that go into new cars. So with a shortage of new cars, the demand for used cars increased. But used car prices are, are down to zero. So, you know, some of this stuff is transitory. And Hold on. When you say used car prices are down to zero, you mean the inflationary part? The, the, the price increases, maybe not exactly zero, but they were very high. Uh, and now they're, let's say, negligible, the, the price increases. Um, also, another thing that I want to mention, uh, something that I've just been doing a little work on. If we look at the relationship between inflation rates and growth rates, the growth of the economy, there's no evidence whatsoever that economies do better or rich economies do better or any economies do better when you push inflation down in the range that the Fed wants to push it. That is to 2%. That's the target, 2%. If you run an economy at, let's say, 2% inflation, you are actually, on average, doing worse in terms of economic growth than if you ran the economy at, say, 4 or 5% inflation. So the task of getting inflation down should not be to get it down necessarily to 2%, but rather, okay, we can shave off a couple of percentage points and get it down to 4%. That makes a big difference. And the tools that uh, Biden has in terms of antitrust, in terms of stopping speculation, in terms of loosening the supply chains, that can get us down, given the fact that inflation is already actually coming down. So why aren't they? Uh, you're, I mean, basically, you're saying that within the context of existing legislation, they could have over the last even two years when, in fact, they controlled both houses. Uh, but even now, they actually could have done far more. And, and they don't seem to be there seems, you know, they seem to talk a bit about it, but they don't really do it. Well, you know, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, let's say oh, over the past 30 years, this idea has emerged and gotten enshrined that inflation in the U.S. and in all the high income countries and in fact, the middle income countries, inflation needs to be at a minimal level, let's say 2 percent. And that's, you, you organize economic activity, economic policy on the goal of hitting a 2% inflation target. In some countries, maybe it's 2.5% or 3%, but that's, that's the range. And secondly, the way you do that is through the Federal Reserve or the equivalent central banks raising interest rates to slow down any, any uh, inflationary pressures and and that that is a way through which again we attack the working class we reduce uh wage demands of workers that's that's been the 
policy framework, the hegemonic, the dominant policy framework is central to neoliberalism. It's been there. Now, to, to get out of there is a big hole. I mean, among other things, not just right-wing Republican economists, some of the most prestigious Democratic Party economists, you know, like Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, uh, Harvard professor, they have been insistent that the only way to control inflation is effectively attacking the working class. So Biden has a big job to try to overcome all that. Uh, there are people within the administration that have been making these other arguments. They haven't prevailed. Now, Summers' argument was that government spending, uh, stimulus packages, was going to be a driver of inflation. And I've played this clip a couple of times in some other interviews, but I'll play it again because I think it's so uh, overtly stated. Chris Christie was on the Stephanopoulos show, and he says, I'm going to rely on Larry Summers, he says. Government spending is going to create massive inflation. Uh, Larry Summers, Clinton's Treasury Secretary, told the Biden administration two years ago, you go ahead with the spending you're talking about and you are going to create enormous inflation. Now, there's a report from the uh, San Francisco Federal Reserve that actually said quite specifically that the stimulus spending might have contributed 3 percent, maximum 3 percent to inflation. This is inflation that reached eight. Uh, but if it hadn't been for the stimulus spending, there would have been a deeper recession, which would have been, their words, far more difficult to manage. And I would guess the effects of the stimulus spending that directly put money into people's pockets and, and increased demand to some extent, that's more or less over anyway, because nobody's getting, you know, that money's done. Uh, so this, this I, but, but when you look at how the Democrats defended their economic policy in the in this elect, last election campaign, they never defended that. They kind of conceded the argument that government spending causes inflation. So everybody's kind of back into this austerity language again. So let's just say what, everything you said is accurate. Uh, the government spending did contribute to inflation. I agree with that. It's not the sole cause. It did contribute but it contributed positively because in the absence of the massive government stimulus programs, we would have had deflation and depression, which would have been far, far worse. So, uh, you know, if we had uh, no government stimulus program, I mean, when COVID hit in March with the lockdowns in March 2020, unemployment went from three and a half percent to 14 and a half percent within a month. And we would have stayed there. And that would have been a Great Depression. We would have seen the collapse of the financial system. We would have seen mass unemployment, uh, people's livelihoods destroyed. So we should be applauding that, you know, there were problems with the stimulus program. I would have designed it differently. But on, on balance, it was a savior. It was, it was a great contribution to human well-being relative to what would have happened in its absence. So yes, it did contribute to inflation, but it created a floor. And then from that floor of economic activity, then you had businesses marking up prices, so monopolistic pricing. You had the oil companies marking up prices, and you did have the supply chain shortages. 
yes, we wouldn't have had any supply chain shortages if we would have had a Great Depression. So the supply chain shortages should also see as a outgrowth of an, basically an effective policy to overcome this global uh, pandemic lockdown. Well, if one listens to the pundits on Wall Street, most of them are saying we're heading back into deep recession uh, and probably within two years, right in time for the 2024 elections. Yet the Fed is still raising interest rates. So, you know, if, if you, I read the chatter from the business press, so a lot of people on Wall Street are now saying it's time to slow down these interest rate increases to back off. And there is a little bit of noise coming out of some of the Fed governors that, well, maybe, maybe we've gone far enough. Uh, that, that could become persuasive over the next month or two, especially given, again, if we, if we just said, well, let's look at inflation over the last three months or four months, not, not year to year. Let's look at what's happened most recently within the year, not a full 12 months. Well, basically, inflation is way, way down. And so, you know, the problem is uh, at least to some extent. Well, hang, hang on. When you say inflation's way, way down, people are going to say, what the hell is he talking about? Because when I go to the grocery store, everything's way, way up. Well, if we look, you know, if, if we believe government statistics, uh, and I think they're pretty good on inflation, uh, yes, we are seeing some food prices are still rising. They rose last month, but energy prices have not, you know, they haven't come down. But, you know, you go to go to a gas station, buy gasoline, uh, you know, it's $3.30 a gallon. Uh, four months ago, it was $5 a gallon. So that is a huge decline in, uh, in energy prices. We're not all the way down to where we were pre-COVID, which was $2.20. But that's the direction in which it's heading. So the financial elite, which more or less dictate Biden's economic policy and Repu mostly Republican economic policy when they're in power anyway, although sometimes there's wild cards, uh, they're, they're playing a, a sort of a game. And I, maybe that's not quite the right word. How far do they allow the in high interest rates to create more unemployment and, and, and diminish consumer demand? Because so much of American purchasing is done on credit cards. So the higher the interest rates, the less people can buy on their credit cards. Uh, versus how concerned are they that these, this is going to drive what's already looking like a recessionary period uh, deeper and and so and then there's the political considerations for the Democratic Party. So uh, first of all, you know, on your point on interest rates, you've made a, a very good point that I, I haven't emphasized yet. Raising the interest rate, in and of itself, contributes to inflation. In you know, in the first instance, why? Because you're making it more expensive to borrow money. So you know, first of all, if people are borrowing money, let's businesses are borrowing money. They're going to want to pass on those costs just like they pass on their uh, workers, their labor costs. And that, in turn, contributes to inflation. Now, the theory is, OK, that effect is going to be temporary. And, you know, sooner or later, businesses are just not going to borrow 
which means they're going to have less money, which means they're going to reduce their activity and lay off workers. So that's that's the basic theory. Now, Wall Street, uh, you know, if, if, if I'm reading the Wall Street news uh, coming out of there, I think they are, you know, conflicted because they don't want a recession. They don't want the value of their assets uh, to collapse. On the other hand, yes, yes, they do would love to see workers get stop getting wage increases. And, you know, even though the wage increases are below the inflation rate so that the the living, you know, the average living standard is being cut, any wage increases, you know, it's it has not happened basically for almost 50 years in the United States. The average worker's wage today is basically what it was 50 years ago in 1972, even though uh, productivity, the amount a worker produces in a day, has gone up two and a half fold. So if the average worker is making $25 an hour today and was making $25 an hour in 1972, if the average worker had gotten raises and commensurate with productivity, they'd be making over $60. The average worker would make over $60 an hour today. And so what that demonstrates is the massive rise in inequality that has occurred under neoliberalism and keeping workers' wage demands down has been central to that project. And so Wall Street wants that project to continue. They just don't want there to be a recession. Well, it's not all under their control. Uh, and there's many conflicting interests here, uh, not the least of which is the fossil fuel companies will fight to the death not to have an excess profit tax. Uh, all of them are going to fight to the death not to have stronger antitrust legislation. Um, it's, it's, the whole system is in, incredibly chaotic, conflicted. And let's put this all in the context of the real crisis here, which is the climate crisis. Uh, I, you can't look at anything in terms of economic policy, frankly, any policy, but you can't look at economic policy without looking at in the context that we are heading into essentially a catastrophic situation, you know, probably sooner than later. Every time you look at the IPCC reports, uh, the, the, the window for avoiding 1.5 degrees narrows. And everybody that really follows this think that we're not going to hit one, you know, we're going to go past 1.5, we're on our way to two. So you put that into the context uh, that, that in, there needs to be some kind of uh, more assertive policy, uh, you know, use the words if you want, because, you know, it's essentially a type of central planning in some form or another, uh, which we already have. I mean, I think you've made the point before, you know, the Pentagon is a form of central planning. So it's not like these guys don't use central planning. They just use central planning to make rich people richer. But what, you know, let's put us, you know, I know it's a little pie in the sky, but at any rate, if you had progressive or control of both houses, you had a president, what do they got to be doing now? Both on the, you know, the sort of side of the rights of workers, the issue of inflation, in the context of a climate policy that's actually going to be effective. So I just asked you to rule the world. Well, thank you for that appointment. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I'm up to the task. My candidate for ruling the world would be my co-author, Noam Chomsky. 
and maybe I could be one of his minor assistants. Um, but uh, short of that, take a stab. Take a stab. I'll at take it. a stab at it. Um, by the way, I have suggested that to Noam. Um, he hasn't taken me up on it. I think he realizes that it's not within my powers to appoint him. Uh, but um, so in, if, if we're going to put the climate crisis on top of everything else, which is where it belongs, uh, number one, I mean, the high uh, oil prices for fossil fuel companies, uh, we should see that as a positive, ironically. The bad news with respect to the high fossil fuel prices is it's, it's attacking people's living standards. So what's the solution there? Well, we can start with the uh, excess profit tax on fossil fuel companies. Uh, so they're not making any extra money. And then we return uh, that the revenue from that tax to people. Uh, and so that they are not hurt by the high fossil fuel prices. Rather, it creates uh, an incentive for people to look to either raise energy efficiency or um, buy cheaper energy, meaning renewable energy. So pr promoting the re renewable energy sector and raising energy efficiency standards, which in turn, as you and I have talked about now for over a decade, is a good engine of job creation. So it expands job opportunities um, and it gets us off of fossil fuels. So that would be uh, my starter in terms of that. And by the way, if we're thinking about saying, well, with respect to the climate crisis, fossil fuel companies shouldn't be making excess profits. Well, actually, follow the logic, they shouldn't be making any profits. They're making profits off of destroying the world. So, you know, logically, we should nationalize the fossil fuel companies and take away the power they have, including the power that we just observed over the past two weeks, to you know, run roughshod, destroy any hope of something positive happening in these uh, COP meetings. You know, the the last COP twenty seven meeting, the fossil fuel companies actually were, were able to prevent any mention whatsoever of cutting back on fossil fuel consumption. Now, there's been some serious. Uh, conversations, I think, and there are some jurisdictions, there's even some legislation to phase out the combustion engine and just pick a date and say, no more cars, no more vehicles after such and such date, there will be no more combustion en engine. Uh, where, where are we at on that? And, and is that a good proposal? I think it's a great proposal. I think proposals that impose, you know, hard regulations are really the best way to make progress here. We're not, it's clear we're not going to make progress at the level of these international meetings uh, because every country has veto power. And so, of course, the fossil fuel uh, dependent economies are going to veto anything. So what really has to happen is on the side of demand. And so what we can impose at the level of states, at the levels of some countries, at the level of municipalities, at the level of big institutions like my own university, as an example, is just say, we're not going to consume. We're going to go 100% electric by renewable energy. And then it doesn't matter what the fossil fuel companies do or say, because we don't want their product. And so, yeah, a state can set a regulation and say that the utility companies in our state have to be run 100% on renewable energy by 
2035. Um, and then that's it. Then no more buying coal, no more buying natural gas, and all the uh, vehicles are going to be electric vehicles. And yeah, you can't you can't run a gas station with fossil fuels anymore with with gasoline. That's the way through which I think you know we can make progress. And if that breaks through, it doesn't have to break through in every state. It can break through in some states. It can break through in New York. It can break through in California. It can break through in Illinois. And once it does that, then the handwriting is on the wall. Then you know the producers of. Uh, renewables, they see their market expanding, the fossil fuel companies, the shareholders say, you know, this is a losing proposition. So that's the way I think that we need to focus in terms of getting out of the current total morass in terms of these global I, negotiations. I don't think the auto manufacturers would even mind it all that much. They, they know it's coming. And as long as it's applied to all of them, so and not one has a competitive advantage over the other, if they all have to get off the combustion engine, they probably wouldn't push back all that yeah. much. Uh, the, you know, they'll just compete and fight for market yeah. share based on. It's happening vehicles. anyway. I mean, you know, I just did a study a few months ago uh, for South Korea, and they are a major auto manufacturer, but they're saying they are going to totally phase out uh, combustion engine vehicles by 2035. They're planning it, and uh, and hasn't Europe hasn't the EU passed some yeah, kind of law? Yeah, based they on have, that? and I so is California. Yeah. And so once you know you you start to get momentum around that, then right, it doesn't matter. You know, you own stock in a fossil fuel company. That's stupid because fossil fuels aren't going to be used for uh, you know powering cars for powering utility companies. So you know, move on. Uh, there's there's opportunities in building a green economy. So people that are organizing on these issues or want to and, and thinking about how they're going to vote, certainly at least at the state level and in some of the big states where there's a lot of progressive public opinion, there could be a real focus on this. Uh, but, you know, by and, and let me ask is by 2030, 35 soon enough. Well, probably not, uh, given where we are. You know, every year that we don't make progress on cutting emissions, that means the next year we have to come up with even bigger cuts. So 2035 might have been, I mean, just reading stuff from the IPCC, uh, you know, getting down to 50% uh, emission reduction by 2030 uh, and getting to zero by 2050. That was what they laid out. Um, we may have to be more aggressive every year that we, we don't make enough progress. But let's say 2035 is, a, is the year in which we ban the use of uh, internal combustion engine cars, that we ban the use of fossil fuel-powered uh, utilities for electricity. Um, I, you know, that's certainly a lot better than what's on the table right now. Do I know if it's adequate relative to the magnitude of the climate crisis? No, because I'm not a climate scientist. The the uh, Biden administration, can they do any of this through executive order or does it all has to be done at the state level? Well, they can do the uh, the antitrust stuff is on the bill. No, can they can they ban the combustion engine under any existing legislation and and or executive order? Uh, no, I don't know, Paul, but what, I mean, I know that they can do it for, 
for government purchases. The government can, which is big, yeah, the big government, including the military, can say that we're going to go all electric vehicles, all electric heat pumps, no more fossil fuel utility uh, purchases. Um, they can do all of that. And so can state governments. And so like you know, UMass is doing, UMass Amherst, my institution, has said that we're going 100% zero emissions by 2032. Uh, let's say every large university made the same commitment. Uh, that would be very impactful. Well, Biden is the commander in chief. He could simply order the military to get off yeah. fossil fuel. Yeah. I mean, he could do lots of things, but that would mean he wasn't the Biden we know. Yeah, that you know, it's much safer to have a supply their own supply chain for what forever nefarious imperialistic projects. It's much safer to have a supply chain based on renewable energy, solar panels, as opposed to having to cart in fossil fuels, uh, you know, uh, constantly to maintain their operations. And they, they've all already, the Navy has modeled how many of their naval ports around the world are going to be disappearing with the rise in sea levels. Uh, they talk about it, but I don't know what they're doing about it. All right. Well, we're going to do another segment on COP27, and we're going to dig in into this. Uh, Ellsberg has this term he uses when he's talking about nuclear war and nuclear weapons policy in the United States. He calls it institutional madness. Well, you can apply the same thing to climate. We've just seen it at COP27. So look out for the next segment uh, with Bob Poland on the analysis. Thanks for joining me. Thank Bob. you, Paul. Good to be on. And Thanks again. Bye-bye.